So let's have God's Word open us up to book of Ezra. Ezra will be in chapter 1, verse 1 through 5, and then we'll jump to chapter 3, verse 1 through 13. We're in the Old Testament. The book of Ezra will begin in chapter 1. And whether you are there in your hard copies in front of you or you can join us up on the screen, please rise for the reading of God's Word. Again, we are in Ezra chapter 1. This is the word of the Lord. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with golds, excuse me, with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem." Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests of the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. Chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. The word of the Lord continues. When the seventh month came, the children of Israel were in the towns, The people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Zodadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the sons of Shealtel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, and all that the appointed feasts of the Lord and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters, and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Therians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. 
Now, in the second year, after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Zodadak, made a beginning, together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests, and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Joshua with his sons and his brothers and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Hanadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, and cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout, and when they praised the Lord because of the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and the Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men, who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so the people could not distinguish the sound of joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Today, uh, as we've shared, we'll be starting a new sermon series entitled Return and Rebuild, and the teaching texts will be from Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, and Zechariah. (laughs) I can see the excitement on your faces when I said that. Uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, and Zechariah. Now, let me set the scene by giving you some background information on uh, these texts. Around 590 B.C., The Babylonians came, and they conquered Judah. They destroyed its city. They destroyed the temple. They killed many of the people. They raped and pillaged the women. And they brought back the survivors, some of the survivors, the remaining survivors to Babylon to live as foreigners and slaves. So we find the people of God, they lost their home, they lost their community, and they lost their temple. Their temple was their normal way of connecting with God. Now, 50 years had gone by. That means two generations of children were born in Babylon. Now, what happens when two generations are born in a foreign land? Well, the people, they lose their identity. You know, very similar to some of us here, if your parents immigrated from another country and you were born here or you came here at a very young age, and then you went on to have children, right, that means your children are the third generation. And so the question is, how much of a connection does your children have with their grandparents? How much of a connection do they have with their grandparents' hometown, their language, their way of life, their customs? very little. You see, in the case with the Israelites, this loss of connection between the children with their grandparents wasn't just a loss of ethnic identity, but it was a loss of spiritual identity. 
Again, there was no worship, there was no community, no sacrifice being offered up, no temple, and so their faith became a distant memory, not a present reality. And so God, He orchestrates human history, uh, He allows Persia to invade Babylon, and He puts it upon the heart of the king of Persia to now allow God's people to re- return back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city and the temple. Now, the, the important thing to note here is that God's interest isn't in some physical building, but what God is trying to do is He's trying to renew His covenant with His people. He's trying to help His people rediscover their identity, and what He's trying to do is He's trying to reformat, or, or He's trying to get the community uh, to, to come together again, to reassemble. And this is what Ezra and Nehemiah are about. Now, the reason why I've decided to study this section of the Bible is because first, I mean, every section of the Bible is important, and this is often a neglected section. But the main reason why, the primary reason why, is because I think there are so many parallels between the Israelites' experience and our present experience. If you recall, during the pandemic, we looked at Ruth. Because we saw that there were just so many parallels between, you know, the story of Ruth and being at the height of the pandemic. Now I think it's our, our time to look to Ezra and Nehemiah because of the many parallels between their experience and ours. You know, for in many ways, the past two years was a time of exile for the church. There was more scattering, less gathering. There was a loss of community. Worship was often compromised first due to safety, but later due to convenience. And for some, as I checked in, it was almost non-existent. Our faith, for some, have become a distant memory rather than a present reality. But most importantly, there's been growing confusion and doubt over our identity as God's people, as God's children. And friends, it is at this point that the Lord is calling us back to return, and to rebuild. Now, if you allow me to speak very honestly from the heart, you know, I was extremely hesitant about starting this series. I was hesitant about starting this series because no one likes the job of rebuilding. We like to build from scratch. We like to create. We like to construct. We also like to break down. We like to deconstruct but no one likes to reconstruct. Whenever it comes to a reconstruction project or when we're called to restore something to its original form, the first question that we always ask is what? Is it worth it? Is it worth it? This is probably what the Israelites in Babylon thought. Is it worth it? You know, the leader that we uh, have read about, Zerubbabel, His name actually means planted in Babylon. So his parents named him so that he would be planted in Babylon. He was destined for Babylon. Why would he leave? Is it worth it? Nehemiah, whom we'll learn about later on, he was a cupbearer to the king. He was awfully close to the king. He had proximity to power. He had a calling in a high position, and he probably thought, is it worth it? 
Do we go through the hassle of going back? Do we engage in this rebuilding project knowing full well the sacrifice, knowing full well the sweat equity it requires, and knowing full well the chance that it might fail? Is it worth it? Or do we just assimilate and call ourselves Persians? You only need one or two more generations for the identity to completely be wiped out. Do we just assimilate? Is it over? Does the story end here? You know, in thinking these thoughts, I was reminded personally that God, on the other hand, loves to rebuild. He loves to rebuild. In fact, if you go through the entire Bible, the most significant prefix that's used is the prefix re, R-E. Throughout the Bible, we find God is a God who renews. God is a God who revives. God is a God who rebuilds. He is a God who resurrects. He is a God who recreates. He is a God who restores. He is a God who reconciles. God is the God of re. And he calls his people over and over again to do what? To repent. He calls his people to return. He calls his people to remember. And he calls his people to be reconciled. You see, the entire story of the Bible can be summed up with the letters R-E. If this means, when, and, and if anything, what this means is that God is a God who simply finishes what he starts. He's a God who never gives up. He's a God who is relentless. So no matter how many times we fail, no matter how many times we backslide, no matter how many speed bumps we hit, whether it's a pandemic, social unrest, or even daylight savings, God will continue to rebuild the ruins of his church, his people. You know, I find interesting Ezra 1.6, as we've read, you know, as the people are coming out uh, back uh, into uh, returning to rebuild. This is what Ezra 1.6 says. And all who, are about, uh, who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares. Now, I don't know if this rings a bell for any of you, but where else do we find the people of God leaving a foreign land, receiving gold and silver and costly goods to build a place of worship? Where else do we find that? In the Exodus. Right? Exodus 12.35, it says this, The people of Israel, they asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And what? The Lord had given the people favor in the sights of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. You see, what's going on in Ezra 1 is that as the people are leaving, coming back home, they are reenacting salvation. They are going through salvation history all over again. You see, the people, as they're going through this, they're being reminded of what God did in Exodus. They're being reminded of the pattern of salvation, and now they realize this is now being repeated in us. And that is giving them confidence to actually move forward. You see, friends, this is exactly what we are trying to do this morning and in the months ahead. We are trying to relive the command to return and rebuild. 
We are trying to relive and reenact the story of restoration, renewal of God's covenant, the reassembling of our communities, and the rediscovering of our identities as God's people. God is the God of R.E. For those of you who play Wordle, you've done it today, text me. And so today, what I want to do is, uh, as we begin this series, I want to launch by just looking at how God's people uh, reestablish rhythms of faith. And I just, I want to look at two things. Um, We find that, how do they reestablish rhythms of faith? Uh, Two things. Um, They reestablish rhythms of gathering, and second, rhythms of grace. So look with me at Ezra 3, 1, it says this. Uh, When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. See, there's an emphasis from the very beginning on gathering. So they reestablished the rhythm of gathering. Remember, these people were scattered. They were separated in Babylon. And this is the first time in 50 years that the people have reassembled together as the people of God. Now, from this point on, What they do is they reestablish rhythms of gathering by reinstituting the liturgical calendar. Uh, Ezra 3.4 says this, And they kept the Feast of Booths. So they gather, and then they keep the Feast of Booths, which was a holiday that remembered God's salvation. And as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required. Not only the Feast of Booth, but later in Ezra 6, they observe the Passover, another holiday remembering God's salvation. And later in Nehemiah, they bring back the Sabbath. And so basically, when the people gathered, this is what they did. They said, all right, everyone, take out your phones. I'm going to create a Google Calendar, and we're all going to add it. And we're going to put it on our calendars. And we're going to make a commitment to gather. What the Israelites did, the first thing is they rearranged their lives, their schedules around each other, around the community, and they understood to exist as a community, there had to be a commitment towards one another. And that commitment towards one another was manifested in a commitment to gather, in a commitment to be present. You know, friends, can I ask you, how do you arrange your calendar, right? What is the centrifugal force behind how you organize your days and your months, Is it work? Is it the school year? Is it the kids' schedule, holidays, social events? I'm not, my intention is not to dismiss the importance of these things, but for people coming out of exile. What we need to do is we need to renew our commitment to one another, and that's done through the act of being present. Have you ever considered of rearranging your calendar? around the people of God, around the acts of salvation, Easter, Christmas, around the Sabbath, around the gatherings of the church to be committed and present for each other. You know, there's a young adult a few years ago who shared with me just her struggle and the way in which uh, there was a bit of a paradigm shift in the way in which she viewed uh, being present for uh, her friends and the church. She, she shared with me that before every CG, and this was on a Wednesday, I believe, every CG, as the time uh, ticked, uh, as she passed lunchtime and she got into the late afternoon, she had to fight this urge of thinking, oh, man, I didn't get enough work done. 
there's not enough time. I can't go. And she had to fight this urge because every single time when, you know, Wednesday had come, she would think, okay, I just can't do it. And then on on days that she would actually go to community groups, she would be so disappointed, let down. Because she would think, man, I didn't get much out of it. And then there would be this false narrative that arises in her head that, that starts to think, you know what? If I studied for those two hours, I could have finished my work. She started thinking that until, until um, there was a bit of a paradigm shift. When she realized that most of the people at the community groups felt the very, very same way, that they were exhausted, tired, that they were running out of uh, hours in the day. And she said, you know what, I realized that the purpose of me actually being there wasn't just for my own personal sanctification, but it was actually for the mutual edification of others. It wasn't just, hey, what can I get out of it, but how can I be present for other people who are probably dealing with the same thing? You know, if you think about family gatherings that we have, the holidays, the events, right, we don't go to family events thinking, what can I get out of this family event? And those family events are often long, probably requires tons of sacrifice, traveling. And there's someone there that you probably don't like. But why do we go to these often voluntary yet mandatory gatherings? It's because as a family, there's a commitment to one another to be there. And church, as we live in this consumeristic society, we have to constantly fight the urge to think, what is in it for me? How am I benefiting from this? What do I get out of this? You see, the purpose of gathering is to remind one another of who we are. We gather to rediscover our identity together as the people of God through worship. I remember when I was in college, there was this person that I really disliked. And she would come to every worship service I would sit in. She would come late often. And even though she would come late, she would situate herself all the way in the front. You know, me being so self-righteous, I would come early with my Bible, and whenever I see her walk in late, try to situate herself in the front, I would always judge her. And at the start of worship, I would sit there, and I would remind myself, you know, God really does love this sinner. (laughs) But when worship ends, I was often reminded, yeah, I am that sinner. See, the reason why we gather is basically we are gathering for the purpose of reaffirming one another, of telling our identity to each other, of rediscovering who we are together, and to say, you know what, it's worth it. Ephesians 5.19 says this, um, as it speaks about the church, the people of God, it says this, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. You know, Ephesians 5.19 tells us that not only when we, in the context of worship, when we sing, we not only sing to God, but we're actually singing to each other. I don't know if this ever happens to you, but when you're in worship and, you know, there's a brother or sister that you know is struggling with something, is dealing with something in their life, and then you start singing this song and you start thinking about that brother and sister, and what happens? You start to sing louder. And you start to sing and pray in your heart, man, I hope my brother or my sister is hearing this. I hope that they are listening. See, we're called not just to sing to God, but we're called to sing to each other. The purpose of gathering is to remind one another of who we are in Christ. 
You know, there are, I think, a number of um, uh, Christian cliches or Christian platitudes uh, that are half true but mostly false. And uh, I think many of you are familiar with them, and I'm just going to list a few because um, these are some platitudes that really need to die. Okay, so get your shovels out. We're going to bury these uh, Christian cliches this morning. Uh, one of them is uh, all sins are equal. It's not true. Anyone who says all sins are equal, it's not true. Uh, another Christian cliche, uh, hate the sin, love the sinner. Also not true. If you want to debate this with me later on, we can't. But it's not true. Another one, God helps those who help themselves. You know, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Nope, it's not true. That's not what the Bible says. Okay. Another one we love to say, God will not give you more than you can handle. No, He does. He gives you more than you can handle, but He calls on you in those moments to lean on Him, to trust in Him, to lean not on your own strength and wisdom, but on Him. So this idea that God, He won't give you more than you can handle, it's not true. He gives you more than you can handle. And finally, the cliche that's, uh, I think, of relevance to us this morning is this. Christianity is about a one-to-one relationship with Jesus. It's not true. Christianity is not about a one-to-one relationship with Jesus. The gospel is about how Jesus redeemed his people, his church. You know, whenever the Bible uses the second person pronoun you, right, where God loved you, Jesus saved you, he redeemed you, he forgave you, all of these yous are actually plural. So it's God saved y'all, okay? He saved yous, you guys, he redeemed. He doesn't speak to individual, you all, he saved. You know, outside of the gospel, the New Testament is addressed mainly to churches, The letters are addressed to an individual, and the letters that are addressed to an individual, Timothy, Titus, and Philemon, they're written to individuals about how they can love others more. And so this idea that I can be a private, secluded, isolated Christian is a flat-out lie. It's saying to Jesus, Jesus, I love you, but I want nothing to do with your bride. I want nothing to do with your people. I mean, imagine saying that to your friend. Brother, I love you, but your wife, I don't want anything to do with her. You can't have a relationship with that friend. You know, with uh, so much time, I'm I'm just going to move on. Um, So, in concluding this point, you know, as much as I hate to state the obvious and repeat myself, um, church, we need to reestablish rhythms of gathering. We need to commit to be there for one another. You know, trying to build a relationship with someone who's flaky is extremely difficult. Trying to build a relationship with someone who isn't present is impossible. And so rhythms of gathering is what the people committed to. You know, after 50 years of not gathering, they're probably thinking, oh man, you know what, this is much harder than we thought. But they committed to gathering because they understood how crucial it was for their community. But the second rhythm that they establish is not just the rhythms of gathering, but it's the rhythms of grace. When they get together, when they reassemble, they don't reassemble just to catch up. They don't reassemble to do small talk. They don't have a barbecue. 
But Scripture says they gathered as one man, meaning they came together with the same purpose. And look at the very first thing that they do. Ezra 3, 2-3 says this, Then they arose, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it. And they set the altar in its place, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord. Burnt offerings morning and evening. What's the first thing they did? They built the altar. What's the significance of this? Well, if you recall, the altar signified God's promise that He would not hold His people guilty for their sins. So it's not an omission of sins. It's actually an omission of guilt. The altar and the sacrificial system was a symbolic act of God taking the sins of the people and transferring it onto the animal, removing the sins of the people so that they can be clean, spotless, and guiltless. See, the altar was a reminder of God's promise to forgive His people. And the very first act that the people engage in is to do what? It's to remember that God is a forgiving God. The first thing they do is to build an altar and sacrifice to be reminded of God's promise. And in so doing, they were rebuilding their identity as the people of God redeemed. I mean, just imagine 50 years, no sacrifice, no sacrifice. And I'm sure the people tried hard, the parents tried hard to pass on the faith over and over again, but they failed. There was no temple, no sacrifice. They tried to observe the Sabbath over and over again, but they failed. They failed. And they're probably thinking, and why is God bringing us back? Is He bringing us back to put us on trial? Is He bringing us back to punish us? Is He bringing us back to give an account? No. As they build the altar and sacrifice on it once again, as the animal burns and the blood drips, they are reminded once again of God's promise that He is a God who forgives. So maybe they did have a barbecue. (laughs) You know, if you think about this, you know, contrary to um, what Satan does, right? Satan, his name means accuser, right? Satan is someone who uh, continues to remind us of our failures, continues to fill us with regret, uh, continues to put upon us a burden that sometimes we don't even have to bear, have to carry, Satan, his work is in accusing us over and over again. You did this, you did this, you did this. You're guilty, you're guilty. How could you? How could you? But our Lord, on the other hand, as he calls his people back, the first thing he does is he reminds his people, no, you are a forgiven people. The blood of my son was not in vain. The blood of my son does not lose its power. You know, and this is, I think, a real existential experience that many of us are dealing with today. I was speaking with a, a brother a few weeks back. He was a brother who grew up in the church, went to church every week, worshiped every week. I mean, he was, as you can find it, the most model Christian. And of course, when the pandemic hit and, you know, he, he fell out of it and he confessed to me, he's like, listen, I haven't worshiped for months. And he's like, I don't know how I can get back. I'm afraid. 
I'm worried, I'm concerned. I feel tons of guilt. And I have to remind them, listen, brother, the altar. We come to the altar. There's an altar where our sins, where we're reminded of God's power to forgive. We worship a loving and forgiving God. As the songwriter or hymn writer John John White says, well, may the accuser roar of ills that I have done. I know them all and thousands more, but Jehovah knoweth none. See, as the Lord is calling us to return to him, it is not so that he can hold us accountable for what we have done, but it's to remind us of our identities as God's forgiven and redeemed people. And you see, this is what the people do immediately. When they return, they reestablish rhythms of gathering. They reestablish rhythms of grace. And they move on, not just from the altar, but they go on to the temple. They build these things up. Why? To reestablish the rhythms of grace. You know, um, New York Times columnist Elizabeth Bruning Uh, wrote a few months ago about our present cancel culture and the way in which our world has uh, completely lost this idea of forgiveness. Uh, She writes that there were centuries and centuries in which the Christian notion of forgiveness was a part of everyone's culture. There was this idea that unconditional forgiveness, starting afresh, forgetting, was something that society adopted. But lately she writes that Lately, she writes that people now have lost this idea and, in fact, become extremely retributive. That if you do anything wrong, the only response is to punish, is to cancel, is to wipe that person away, is to allow that act to completely define who that person is. And Elizabeth Bruning, who I don't think is a Christian, She says, the only way in which civil society can actually hang together is through the act of forgiveness. If we hold each other accountable to every single thing that we did, if we allow our mistakes and our sins to actually define us, then we'll all be canceled. You see, the reason why the church we gather, the first thing we do is what? We reestablish the rhythms of grace. We're reminded of who we are as God's forgiven people. Over and over again, this is the theme that we sing. Over and over again, this is what we hear of how God loved us, of how God forgiven us. From the very beginning of the call to worship, we're, we're, we're reminded of how God calls us into his presence, not because of who we are, but because of who he is and what he has done. Over and over again, this is repeated. God's forgiveness and His grace. And it's through that rhythm now we go out to live according to that story. You know, let me just uh, end by sharing with you uh, an illustration from uh, just a very profound movie uh, that I watched uh, a few years ago. And uh, that movie is Toy Story 4. Uh, If you know me by now, you know, I love the Toy Story series. Um, I'm not an emotional guy, but I think it's the only series that I actually cried in every single one of them. I cried in Godfather 1, Godfather 2, but not Godfather 3. But in the Toy Story series, in all four of them, I think I teared up. 
but if, for those of you who watched it, um, you know, there's this, uh, this character in the movie uh, by the name of Spork. And Spork is made by this young girl named Bonnie. She, she makes this, uh, this uh, spoon-fork-looking character with these eyes. And Spork brings Bonnie much joy. But Sporky is actually someone who's afraid. He keeps running away. And where does he run away to? He runs away to the trash because that's what he thinks he is. He thinks he's trash. So in the entire movie, he's running, trying to throw himself away. But throughout the movie, Woody, he spends the entire, the, the entire duration of the movie following after Spork, convincing him that he is not trash. He says, listen, you're not trash. You are loved and admired by your maker, Bonnie. Bonnie is looking for you. He is pursuing you. And Woody reminds Sporky of his identity. He even shows Sporky that he has uh, Bonnie's name inscribed onto his feet. He says, this is who you are. This is who you are. You belong to your maker. You belong to your master. And he loves you with an unconditional love. And so, friends, wherever you might find yourself this morning, would you be reminded of God's grace for you? However you came here, whatever history or past you've had, whatever you're feeling this morning, would you be reminded of who you are? And would you allow the people of God, this community, to speak into that as we sing and worship Him together? Friends, would we commit once again to reestablishing the rhythms of gathering and the rhythms of grace in our life? for the praise and glory of his name. Join me in prayer at this time.